This episode of Insights is brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca. Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had an interesting discussion today with Bernard LeBlanc, the CEO of the Greater Moncton Airport Authority, just to get a sense of the economic contribution of that airport, uh, how it plays a role in economic development, what has happened since the airport has been privatized, and how they are managing and expecting to come out of the pandemic, which has been hard on airports across the entire country. Well, you know, uh, as Bernard indicated, they invest, they've invested nearly $100 million into the airport operations since the, the new airport. <laughs> it's kind of funny to say that it's 20 years old. Uh, it was opened in 2002. Um, and obviously, it generates a lot of economic uh, uh, activity. They did a, an economic impact study. I think it was 2016, and he mentioned that, uh, which indicated about $650 million of economic activity. You know, we, we can we can question that a bit, I suppose, because of, uh, uh, of some of the things that are included in that. But nonetheless, 500 uh, jobs that are directly tied to the airport. So it's a significant um, economic activity for any community that has an airport, obviously. The other thing that I think that was really a, a an important conversation is that most people don't think about airport authorities, right? It's not, it's not something you think about, but the airport, the transfer of the airport to communities, to these airport authorities has been enormously important uh, to the country. Almost every airport in Canada has been modernized as a result of this transfer. And, and it has not cost the taxpayer directly any money because most of that's funded by the airports through long-term debt or their airport improvement uh, fee, which is a user fee, obviously. And so now we have a modernized uh, network of airports across the country that I'm sure, positive, that uh, would not have happened without this move to transferring the, the management, at least, of the airports to uh, local communities. I think that's absolutely correct, although I, I never understood the logic of the federal government still owning the airport or the land for 60 years and also charging the airport's fees for the right to use that land. I think um, there had to be a better way to transfer. I understand the Fed still wanted to have oversight and you know safety and these other issues, but the fact that they charge them, you know, I forget what he said, it's not a huge amount, but like $500,000 a year. And the fact that it's very hard for the airport to enter into long-term agreements because they're already 23 years into the 60-year lease. So that seemed a little squirrely to me, but in general, you're absolutely right. Most airports that were um, uh, transferred to these authorities have grown, and this airport is is no difference. I think it's gone from under 300,000 a year to almost 700,000 passengers uh, before the pandemic. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that it's grown the travel uh, market considerably because of better facilities and people working on new routes uh, more aggressively than under the federal regime, uh, which they really didn't care much about, uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, one of the challenges, uh, I was part of the airport authority in Halifax when we negotiated with the federal government. It took nearly five years to get a deal that we could live with. And in the end, the deal was not that good. It was it was fully weighted towards the federal government, and Bernard outlined this in, a, in his conversation with us. You know, at the end of the sixty-year term, the airports have to hand over the airports to the federal government. All the you know money that's been invested to upgrade them, that all that money has to be paid off. They have to be transferred back to the federal government debt-free. All the while, all the while over sixty years. You know, they get uh, they get rents based on uh, revenues uh, uh, that the airports generate. It's a very sweet deal for the federal government and for Canadians, I suppose. But it's also not that fair. And, you know, I know for a fact that, uh, you know, uh, most airports still think that uh, it, it should be done a different way. 
Yeah, and hopefully it'll be uh, renegotiated. I think Bernard hinted at that. We we had a wide-ranging conversation. We talked about the new potential routes that could fly in and out of uh, Greater Moncton. We talked about the possibility of one single airport. You'll be interested to hear in what Bernard has to say about that. And we talked about a number of other issues. So I think it'll be a very enlightening conversation for our listeners. Yes, it's a really important conversation, and uh, and I think that people will learn a lot about how uh, how uh, the uh, airport authorities uh, manage the their uh, their airports. And and he, and one thing that I think was really interesting at the end, and I think people will will uh, be interested in this as well, is that he predicted that you know the future will not be like the past in terms of the routes and the. And the things that are being currently uh, had been served uh, by these airports, they're going to change rather dramatically because of uh, what's happened, and uh, and 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 the revenue mix might change quite dramatically for some airports. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I'm a little bit annoyed at what he told us about Halifax that there's it's not going to be positioned as a regional airport for Air Canada anymore. There was merit to having flight small short haul flights that that went into Halifax and then were hubbed you know, to the U.S. or elsewhere. And so that that sort of takes an arrow, arrow out of the quiver here in Atlantic Canada. It's going to force everything through Montreal or Toronto, whereas there was some benefit, I think, to the region by having uh, Halifax as a, as a quasi-regional hub. Anyway, uh, without any further ado, here is our conversation with Bernard LeBlanc, CEO of the Greater Moncton Airport Authority. Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. So, Bernard, you recently announced that you would be retiring from your position of CEO at the Moncton Airport. Perhaps we can begin our conversation today by finding out a little bit about your background, what led you to this role, and I guess ultimately your decision to uh, to, uh, to to leave the role here uh, in the short term. Sure. I, um, I grew up in Edmonston, so in a bilingual neighborhood in New Brunswick. Uh, undertook electrical engineering degree at uh, McGill University in Montreal, and then I followed that by... Uh, an MBA at Dalhousie in Halifax. In between the two, I had worked for electrical utility in Switzerland for the summer. So uh, following graduation, I actually started working with Westinghouse uh, in sales and, and branch management for them. They were really focused on uh, pulp and paper mills, uh, mines, that type of activity in New Brunswick that's changed quite a bit since then. And uh, so I actually started with them in Moncton and uh, moved to Thunder Bay, Ontario, because very similar markets there. So uh, after uh, six, seven years with them, I took on a role with, uh, I guess, a multinational company that was involved in fire alarm systems. So I was based in Toronto, uh, spent a few years in Toronto and was transferred to Los Angeles with them. So in uh, VP or or area general management roles in uh, California was for Southern California, which people ask me why I ever came back, but uh, (laughs) that's a different story. Uh, And uh, after that, I I actually uh, took on a role with J.D. Irving and moved to New Brunswick in uh, late 1996. I moved back to New Brunswick, uh, worked with the Irving Group with a company at the time was called uh, Commercial Equipment. Uh, was had 300 employees, branches all over Atlantic Canada and the U.S., but unfortunately wasn't profitable. So we uh, we spent a few years re- doing major restructuring. It went from uh, 300 employees to 42, and we focused purely on the petroleum equipment distribution business and started building gas stations, those type of things. So we were able to grow that business into a very profitable business, and now they're, they're actually I see they're expanding across the rest of Canada. So in, um, I guess, uh, after 10, 11 years with uh, the Irving Group, um, I actually took on the role with the St. John Airport, uh, spent just over four years there, the, then moved on to Transaqua as they were trying to make a transition to uh, a bit more governance oversight, those type of things. And when, when I was at Transaqua, the Wastewater Commission, I was recruited for the Moncton Airport and just uh, finishing seven years there. So. You know, people ask, well, how did you get into an airport? But if I look at my background, you know, airports have a lot of electrical equipment, a lot of maintenance, a lot of operations, firefighting. So it, it really ties into a lot of uh, the things I've done in the past. So it was more, any, more learning the aviation business than anything else. And I, I think it's an interesting business, so easy to, to learn that way. And I think 
again, how we got into airports. Maybe one of my first summer jobs was watching for forest fires as an observer. So maybe that's the aviation tie you better. <laughs> so Bernard, you're still a pretty young man. Why, why did you decide to hang up your uh, um, skates uh, now? You know, timing's everything I find. And we, if I look at uh, where we're at with the airport, uh, things can only go up now. Like we're, we're in a position where uh, with government support, we, we did well through the pandemic in terms of uh, having a stable base. Uh, a lot of changes at the airport this year. So I'll be leaving, our board chair is leaving. We'll have a new board chair. Uh, the airport's looking at developing a, a new strategic plan. Uh, with, with restructuring with COVID, we reduced one key position, which was commercial development. So we need to recruit that. So to me, it was a great time for someone new to come in and, and take on that role. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to walk into an organization where the strategic plan was developed yesterday and I'm responsible to develop it. So it seemed like a, a, a great fit that way to have someone take on the lead and, and take the charge from there. So we're trying to expose our listeners to the uh, economic drivers of regional economies in Atlantic Canada. And of course, airports are a very important uh, economic driver, a driver of economic development. Um, have you done an economic impact study recently? And if so, do you have a sense for our audience of what the GDP and employment impact is of the of the Moncton Airport? Sure. Yeah. The uh, last one we actually did, we released in early 2016. It was based on the 2014 passenger traffic activity. Uh, the good news is that that was our second best year ever. We, we actually did a bit better in 2018. Uh, but if we look at those uh, numbers, you know, our, our pasture traffic was around 677,000 pastures that year, I believe. Uh, our peak was 681,000 pastures 2018. But that study showed that uh, annually we would generate 665 million uh, of economic activity uh, based on the airport being there. Uh, we also, uh, you know, we generate about 500 full-time jobs at the airport, uh, just short of 2,800 jobs, uh, direct and indirect in uh, the region because of the airport. I think it translated to uh, some like $23 million worth of uh, household income and, and uh, big tax revenue. So it was $37 million in, in tax revenue annually, uh, $6 million at the federal level, $22 million provincially, and about $9 million for the municipality. So definitely there's a huge benefit of having an airport in the, in a region or municipality. And that's why I, I think no, uh, no region municipality likes to give up their airport rates. The current airport, I was surprised by this was open in 2002. I keep thinking of it as a brand new airport, but it's actually 20 years old. I was really taken back by that. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about the growth in, in passenger traffic and cargo traffic, um, you know, since the, the new, the, New airport was open uh, up until at least the pandemic, obviously, because that changed everything. But uh, what was the growth pattern like before the uh, pandemic? Sure. The uh, the new terminal opened up in 2002. And the, the great news, although it's 20 years old, it, it still looks terrific. And uh, even better, it's paid for. So that that's a, a great <laughs> position to be in. Uh, so, you know, before privatizing the airports, uh, you know, most of the, I would say the three larger airports in New Brunswick had about 200,000 passengers. And when the federal government looked at privatizing, they were kind of looking at that 200,000 passenger mark to decide whether you'd be remain on federal land and, and federal jurisdiction, or if you'd be more of a local or regional airport. So all three uh, New Brunswick airports ended up transferring, even though I, I think St. John probably had to do a bit of lobbying because they were below the mark. Uh, but uh, when we look at uh, Moncton and uh, the uh, not-for-profit airport authority took over in, in September 1997, for that year, our passenger traffic was just short of 250, sorry, 240,000 passengers. Uh, cargo activity was much lower than it is now. So if we look at cargo activity, it was maybe 6,000 metric tons, and it was mostly... Uh, FedEx was a lot of that activity and, and some Air Canada and um, Canadian Airlines at the time. So if we move to, uh, you know, between 2014, 2019, 
we've been more closer to the 700,000 passenger range or our peak was 681. If we didn't have a pandemic in 2020, we probably would have reached 700,000. And, and our cargo volume is about 20,000 metric tons a year. Uh, what we started doing the past few years is really looking at cargo as revenue instead of tonnage because we, we've seen a big shift between Amazon box shipments, uh, marijuana shipments, uh, fresh food shipments. So they're busier than they've ever been, but the tonnage might not be as high that way. So in, and so our, our airport's done very well when we look at growth since privatization. Uh, if I look at neighboring airports, I think Fredericton's done quite well as well because they've hit over 400,000 passengers with a, a lower population base. But, but in St. John, they've struggled a bit more. They haven't been able to reach the 300 range. So, so you know, in, in Moncton, it, it, you know, we've more than two and a half times our, our volume, both in passenger and cargo. So. You know, the decision by the federal government in the 90s to allow the establishment of independent airport authorities has really led to vast improvements in airport infrastructure and air, air service, not only within Atlantic Canada, but across the country. I personally had the experience of being on the board of the uh, original Halifax International Airport Authority during a very difficult negotiation period with the federal government to transfer the airport. We had to get terms we could live with, as you probably are aware. And there's still some questions about those terms, I'm pretty sure, as well. But for the benefit of our listeners, can you describe the relationships that airport authorities have with the federal government today? Sure. There's a... Uh... It's a very good book that talks all about airport privatization, and there's a chapter on each airport. You may be mentioning there, Don. I don't know. <laughs> Might uh, the, be. <laughs> I, I've read the New Brunswick chapter. They're, they're quite good. They they say how difficult the the negotiations were, right? And anyone mm. that was on the boards at the time realizes that. Uh, so, with uh, you know, when when we deal with the federal government, occasionally they'll remind us that we're just sto- st- stewards or custodians of the airport. So. So we don't own the airport. We're just there for a fixed term, for a lease term. So the, the way the leases were drawn up with the airport authorities, they're typically 60-year leases. Uh, they could be extended for an additional 20 years. Um, you know, again, as you hinted at, there was a lot of arm twisting to accept this or else. So there was, it wasn't a good deal. Moncton was the first airport in Atlantic Canada to sign off, and their lease was worse than others so it, it was rectified at some point in time over time so we're we're pretty well aligned with everyone else but the leases do have very strict requirements so we have so many days to undertake an annual meeting to put through an annual report we have to do a master plan every 10 years we have to do an external audit that we're meeting the ground lease every five years so there's all these requirements in there over and above all the challenges of running an airport. So all the meeting regulatory requirements, whether it be aviation related, uh, environmental related, labor related, we, we fall under federal jurisdiction. So, you know, the biggest challenge for airports in Canada, and I, I think it may be um, even worse for, for larger airports than some our size, is the term of the ground lease. So, you know, you're, you're limited to how long we can put contracts in place because of the end of the lease going. So, you know, if we're 23 years into a 60-year lease, that limits us to about 37 years that we could actively put a lease in in place right now. Um, The other part is, you know, we are required to pay rent to the federal government. And in our case, we're fortunate it's been abated during the pandemic. uh, But for some of the much larger airports in Canada, it's just deferred. So they still have to pay that. And the rent is really based on revenue. So... Uh, the better we do, the more rent we pay. And it escalates from some like 2% a year payment to 12% based on revenue. So it's a, a sliding scale that way. So in, in our case, you know, before the pandemic, we were paying about half a million dollars in rent. And the unfortunate part about that, especially for a smaller airport, that money doesn't go back to airports. It just goes into the general coffer of the federal government. But if that 500000 we could use to pay for infrastructure, we would be much ahead of, of the agreement we have now. So, so those are the type of things that you know, concern airports. Uh, if anything goes wrong, you're really on your own. We've been fortunate during the pandemic that government did come and assist us financially. 
and probably better smaller airports than larger airports. So I, I look at the at Halifax, they're, they're still seeing a 40 or $100 million impact a year of losses because of the pandemic, and, and they haven't had a lot of relief for it. So, you know, so again, the, the challenges are the fixed term of the lease. Uh, what happens at the end of the lease as well? We're supposed to turn back the airports in the same condition we got them uh, rent or debt free. So what that would mean is maybe the last 10 or 20 years of, of operating the airport, you can't spend any money. So, so you'd let it deteriorate. So I, I think the federal government will need to uh, address some of those issues over long term. And, you know, there's occasionally been discussions about privatization of airports or fully selling them. But, you know, if you talk to experts in the field, that could happen to maybe the top five airports, but very unlikely for, for the rest of us. So, so you know, it, it's, uh, there's, the approach has been good. Uh, airports, if I look in New Brunswick, have been self-sustaining, uh, but you get into challenges when you have to reinvest in major infrastructure. And that's where government did come true during pandemic, so that was beneficial. Bernard, yeah. can I just ask you why they don't municipalize the airports? In other words, let the municipalities own them. I understand maybe some concern over outright privatization, but why not let the municipalities own them? I, I, it's interesting. If you read this book by David Langlois and you look at some of the history, uh, some of the airports flip-flop back and forth between municipalities because they weren't profitable, right? So, so we could repeat history and, and go that way. Uh, I think the biggest challenge with municipalities running them are probably twofold is the, the need for capital investment. So that's the biggest challenge, whether it's financially viable. Uh, I would say the other thing is one benefit we do have from federal jurisdiction. If we look at property taxes, we only pay the municipal portion. We don't pay the provincial portion. So all of a sudden you might have to pay a lot more. Uh, for us, for instance, um, we did get the, a bit of uh, property tax abatement last year, but this year the province is expecting us to pay full taxes, that's over a million dollars. So if you're looking at a $2 million tax bill, that could be huge, right? So, so I, I think there, you know, some, if we look around, there are some municipalities that own airports and do very well. One, one uh, example is Kelowna, uh, who, who's done very well at, as an airport, municipally owned have a, a similar type of federal lease arrangement, but it's it's kind of for a dollar, no rent payable. So that type of approach could work. And, you know, you could reach something long-term, but you may want to have a bit of a backstop that if, if we need capital infrastructure support or, or there are programs that you could participate in. Yes. Now just as a little editorial, based on my experience, during, you know, we, we actually negotiated almost five years with the federal government to turn over the airport. It was so difficult. And in the end, we had to take a bad deal. That was the only way it was going to be transferred. We took a deal which we didn't think was fair, but we took it in the interest of the community. And of course, if you look at what Halifax has done with the airport, it's uh, it's night and day from where it was when before um, the airport authority came into existence. And, and 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 in the meantime, the federal government has benefited tremendously by this in two ways. They don't have to pay for any infrastructure upgrades, which are billions of dollars in Canada, Bernard, as you know. Plus, they get paid rent on on revenues. It's it's a pretty sweet deal for the uh, federal government. Not many people actually know about that, right? But you know, we all experience it um, in this region, one way or the other. Uh, one of the powers that the airport authorities have been given is the power to tax passengers through the so-called airport improvement fee. Can you talk about the importance to the airport authority of uh, this airport improvement fee? Sure. Uh, I'm not sure I'd call it a tax. That's what the, the airlines refer to it in the U.S., but in Canada we prefer to call it a tool that we can use to pay for our <laughs> infrastructure. So in, in our case, uh, you know, it, it's very different in Canada than the U.S. In the U.S., it's restricted to $4.50 per implaining passenger. Here, we, we can increase it. We do have to consult with the airlines. Uh, but it, it's really meant to pay for the infrastructure. Uh, smaller airports, typically under 300,000 passengers or so, can, pay can use it to pay for uh, operations as well. So they call right. it a, a passenger facilitation fee as opposed to airport improvement. Fee. Uh, so the challenges with the AIF is uh, if we look at the pandemic, 
there wasn't any airport improvement fee coming in because there weren't passengers, right? right. So yeah. what's happened since is we've depleted the whole fund. Uh, typically, how we get to use the fund is we have an airline consultative committee at each airport. So the airlines vote or ballot which of our projects they approve for use of these funds. Uh, typically, that's not a problem, but sometimes you get surprises. So we just went through the balloting for our projects for 2022, and the airlines approved all the projects so we can use those funds. Now, we have to replenish the funds to have them to use, but that means that we can use it to pay for our loans, the interest on the loans, those type of things. Uh, but we had a situation about two years ago uh, where we, uh, we undertook a, a major uh, project, which was to capture and dispose of the de-icing fluid uh, that are used when de-icing an aircraft. We really had to do this because uh, the Wastewater Commission uh, was accepting these products and we had to coordinate with them how we discharge it into the municipal system, make sure it doesn't affect your system, everything else. We, we had a great arrangement, worked with the city of Zieppe, worked with Transaqua, agreed on the process, $7.5 million project, and we were fortunate to get national trade corridor funding for half of it. When we approached the airlines to ballot use of air, airport improvement fees, they said no. So, so they said you can't use the fees for this because it's going to benefit cargo airlines as much as passenger airlines. And unfortunately, the airlines see this as their money when it's really money paid for by the passengers. So, you know, we, we did our, our whole due diligence and explained to them that, you know, 85% of the use is for passenger airlines, not cargo. If we don't do this project, we're going to charge about, will probably cost about $2 million a year to try and, and vacuum up all the product or process it, ship it to Halifax for disposal, and we'll have to charge you for that. So um, it didn't make sense for us to use that approach from the environmental perspective. So we decided to go with the project anyways, even if they wouldn't pay for the half of the $7.5 million. Uh, but what we did is we implemented a surcharge that everyone that uses the icing fluid at our airport uh, will pay $1.15 per liter used, and that will help us repay our loan. So it's, it's not the approach we wanted to use because we, you know, this could have been cost neutral to the airlines, uh, but that's the approach we've used. But if at some point in time, they change their mind and then we can go back. But it, it just, I, I think the only problem with the airport improvement fee, and we haven't had many issues in our regions, but I think sometimes in, in larger airports or for major investments, they may, there may be some pushback and, and that makes it a bit challenging. So Bernard, uh, with that in mind, how much has the Moncton Airport Authority invested in airport infrastructure since the new airport was opened in 2002? Since, uh, if we look at, uh, since we transferred from uh, the federal government in 1997, and we look at uh, since we've been collecting airport improvement fees, we've collected over $92 million. And, and as you heard, the, the fund is depleted. So all that money has been reinvested into infrastructure. Uh, there are some capital investments that haven't gone through that fund. So we've had the fund out of pocket as well. But I would say, you know, $92 million probably reflects really well what we've invested in since uh, we've transferred from federal government. So, so you weren't able to get the de-icing uh, infrastructure. Can you give us a few examples of other capital investments that you've put that $92 million against? Sure. Yeah, if I just, uh, I just look at my past seven years at the airport, uh, we built a, a brand new uh, airport operations facility where all, all our teams operated on before they were out of five, five different buildings. So that cost $13.5 million. That was in 2015. Uh, we, uh, over the last few years, we re rehabilitated both our runways. So uh, runway 624 we did in 2019. Uh, that was uh, $8.45 million. So no government funding. We, we had to take a loan and pay for all of that. Uh, this past year, we just resurfaced our other runway 1129. Uh, we were fortunate with the pandemic to get half of it covered by the federal government through an uh, airport capital assistance program. But that, that total cost was $8.3 million. We bore half of that. Uh, we also, uh, you know, things like uh, uh, emergency response vehicles, fire trucks, we purchased one of those. That was $900,000. Uh, we um, 
just before the pandemic started, we actually reconfigured the inside of the airport terminal to make our, our airport lounge airside and to give accessibility to our mezzanine. So we added uh, an elevator, those type of things to make it a lot more accessible. So that was another million dollar project. Um, this year in 2022, uh, we, um, we have to, uh, again, regulatory compliance forces us to invest in certain things. We have to do runway and safety areas. And it, it would have been sooner, but with the pandemic, it's delayed a bit. Uh, but we've uh, we've got the opportunity to receive funding from the federal government for half of it. So that's about a $4.5 million project that we'll undertake this summer. We're just going through the uh, tendering stages right now. So half of that cost will be borne. So all, all those projects really come from the airport improvement fee. So it's, it's a, you know, it's critical for our operation. And, and the good news for a larger airport like us in New Brunswick, let's say, we can do better with paying for our infrastructure than maybe a smaller one, but it's really based on the passenger traffic because that's where the revenue comes from, right? So, so in, in our situation, that that's really helped. But if I look at an airport like St. John, when I, when I was um, the CEO over there, you know, we had discussions about do we have to close a runway someday if there's no government funding because we can't afford to resurface both of them, right? So, Can you provide some examples of some of the future capital investments that are under consideration uh, at the airport? You know, with the, with the pandemic, we've really pushed back our capital plans a few years. So we've postponed some projects that we, we would have anticipated to do. So for instance, in 2020, uh, we were approved for a national trades corridor project that would have had total value close to 17 million. Uh, we decided to only undertake the the compliance or regulatory piece of that project. So that was the de-icing piece. The other components were expanding our cargo apron, expanding our de-icing pad and a, a road to facilitate movement of goods to the apron. Uh, we're probably going to do the latter one, the road this year, but the other two we're pushing into the future, but they, they're still critical. These are a bit more expansionary projects, but our, our challenge is when we're as busy as we were in 2019, we do really well with the uh, sun destination traffic, those type of things. With that type of activity, it really restricts our cargo activity because international freighters that, that are going to Asia are 747. There's only one apron they can use, and that's the apron where these charters will overnight. So when we had that type of activity, we had to tell the cargo operators, we can only accept you between this time and this time on that day. So what we're trying to do with this project is really expand the apron such that if a cargo or a large cargo aircraft is there, it doesn't affect the rudder activity. So that that's something that will be critical the next few years, because as we get back to the normal level of activities, we'll still feel those bottlenecks, right? Uh, the um, if, if we look at other things in the future, uh, the good news is our terminal building doesn't need any major investment right now. We see that the terminal can withstand up to about a million passengers. So if we can work with the airlines to uh, spread those apart during the day instead of all at the same time, that buys us a bit of time. With time, though, we'll probably have to expand uh, our upper mezzanine level, put some boarding gates up there. So those are all projects that we'll have to do. Uh, a lot of what we do at the airport is, is really rehabilitating the existing so if you look at our parking lots right now uh, we have to mow them there's grass growing to them so it's something we have to reinvest <laughs> in so that that's some of our projects that as funds permit will go to but we're really focused right now on the essentials so upgrading uh, programmable controllers you know those type of things that keep the building going at some point we'll have to replace doors and windows in the terminal building so those are all we gradually replace roofs and and I think where it becomes critical is, you know, we, we always say we have newer equipment, which we do, but the newer equipment is getting eight to 10 years old. So we're seeing with a harsh winter like this year, uh, our sweepers and plowing equipment, which are a million dollar piece of equipment, are breaking down more. So we have to start reinvesting in those because, you know, you need them when, when the weather is bad. So, so I, I think, you know, it, it's a combination of some expansionary projects and, and some are you know, critical, essential, safety-related day-to-day type initiatives. And, and I think, you know, as the, the board in 2022 
looks at its long-term uh, strategic vision, what do you want to do, right? So there could be other things that come out uh, that would be nice. I, I know one of my pet peeves with the airport is uh, try and drag a suitcase from our parking lot to the terminal building in the middle of winter isn't a pleasant spot. So if you could have a, a, a ramp or, or a covered area to do that, I think it would make the, the traveling experience a lot better for our users, right? So. One of the challenges within the region has been the availability of competitive flights within Atlantic Canada. Before the pandemic, Air Canada, through a subsidiary, effectively had a monopoly in flights within the region. That service, frankly, was really can be characterized, I think, by you know, sometimes unreliable service because of the old equipment that was being used, old and un uncomfortable equipment, I should say, poor schedules, and what I would only categorize as predatory pricing. And in uh, service within the region has slowly been is slowly being rebuilt through PAL PAL Airlines, I believe, which have better aircraft at least as a start. Can you talk about the reasons why interprovincial and intraprovincial air service has been so challenging in this region for so long? Sure. I, I think, uh, you know, it uh, probably relates to what you talk about in all your podcasts, but it's really economic realities and population base, right? Like that's, 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 that's our biggest challenge is, you know, we often compare ourselves to much larger cities in terms of what activity happens at the airports, but, but we're a small town, right? So we're, we're when you look at our population, that, that's really challenging. Uh, if, if we, you know, Air Canada made some tough decisions during the pandemic, so they cut, in our case, our Ottawa flight and all the Halifax-related uh, flights in Atlantic Canada. Uh, from speaking to them, the Ottawa one could return. The Halifax one is like very unlikely. And, and you know, we see that at, at the Moncton Airport, that if people want to go to Halifax, they will typically drive, right, and then maybe take a flight to connect somewhere else. Uh, we were real uh, fortunate during the pandemic that PAL came to start up some new service, so they could be a great partner for us. But what they're offering isn't the same, right? So, so if we look at PAL, they're they're offering uh, direct flights to Wabush, to Halifax, to Ottawa, uh, Deer Lake, and St. John's. But the reality, when Air Canada flew to Halifax, they would have three to four flights a day, while PAL may have two or three a week. So, so very different approach that way. Uh, and I, you know, it's not just us. I think if we look at Newfoundland, access to those type of services, it has been a challenge as well. So I, in, in the end, it, it's, it's really, if the routes aren't profitable, who's going to subsidize them to happen or, or do they need to happen? Uh, in, for instance, with Air Canada, we had discussions October last year, I believe, where they said, look, uh, we are going to cut these routes uh, but what you may see is from a Sydney, for instance, you may see more direct flights to Montreal and Toronto as opposed to connecting to Halifax. So they're trying to bring you to their hubs. So, so their approach is to feed their, their hubs. Uh, other airlines like WestJet are starting to look at that as well. And even Porter just announced last week with us that we'll have a direct flight to Toronto Island. To me, that's terrific because that feeds their hub. Now, all of a sudden, you're one connection away if you want to go to Chicago, New York, or Thunder Bay, which we couldn't take advantage of. So, I, you know, I, I think sometimes what we want is good to feel that way, but the, if it's not profitable, it might not have a long-term viability. So, Bernard, not to editorialize here, but this is one of the things that's really bugged me over the years. So, air transportation infrastructure rail transportation infrastructure, uh, ocean transportation infrastructure, these are all strategic transportation. And to leave everything to the market and say there's not any sort of public interest in that, I think Don's a little more right-wing than me on these things. But I, I think that, that that's concerning to me. If you're telling me that service post-pandemic is going to be worse than it was pre-pandemic, um, you know, that that's really concerning. So is that what you're saying? Or, or, because my hope was that this, things were going to go back to normal. We'd have multiple airlines, WestJet, you know, Air Canada, PAL, whatever, uh, offering multiple routes. Are you, are you worried that we're going to have less service even when we're back to normal? I, I think normal may not be the same as it was before. So uh, if I look 
there's a lot of new startup airlines, a lot of new service kicking off, a lot of seat capacity coming to Atlantic Canada this summer. It'll be interesting if they all survive, if they all grow, if they all stay around. Because they, you know, between the Flair, Swoop, Jetlines, Lynx, there's a lot of new airlines. And they, I know when I joined the airport, it was the funniest thing because in our boardroom, we had these pictures of all these airlines on the wall that were all defunct. So it was like an airline graveyard. So we, we had to take that down because it was depressing. But our, our business does change quite a bit. I, I think where it's a bit frustrating for the airports is if you compare the aviation sector to ports or uh, uh, trains, those type of things, money is put into those sectors. So if I look at the Port of St. John, for instance, you know, an $80 million investment in, in it by government is something that you really don't see in our world. If you see an investment in high-speed trains between Quebec City and, and Windsor, you don't see that type of subsidization of, of aviation. So we're, we're really not comparing apples to apples. And I think sometimes airports feels that, you know, maybe the rent we're paying is subsidizing other transportation modes as opposed to aviation, right? So. Yeah, it, it still bugs me because, you know, government has 100% control over transport, over road transportation. So that infrastructure, roads, bridges, all that, you know, the government, you know, has a 100% monopoly essentially with some toll highways. But then every other aspect of transportation infrastructure they've divested, which it's fine in terms of the operations, but there still should be public interest considerations and all this type of infrastructure. But I'm sure Don and I will have a conversation with that later. I wanted to ask you about this um, issue of potentially merging the three southern airports. Uh, Halifax is the biggest airport in the region by far. Um, it does have more of a, a, a bigger population. But even if you look at the number of flights adjusted for population size, it's much larger. Um, and it now has the pre-clearance, so it's unlikely we'll ever get direct flights into a U.S. hub now out of New Brunswick. So this idea has been floated of one major airport. Um, and, and a matter of fact, maybe you can give our listeners an update. I don't know. I thought the province was even doing some sort of study. So if you know anything about that, let us know. But I guess our question for you here is, do you think there would be value in that single airport? Uh, and then I think it, uh, it, it'll be an easy answer, but where would you like to put that single airport? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I can answer all those questions, but, uh, you know, for over 40 years, we, we've taught, we keep comparing ourselves to Halifax and, and talking about one airport. The challenge with that is we forget history, right? The reason Halifax is the size it is, you know, Halifax had a million passengers in the 1970s, very different situation than we've had in New Brunswick. And, and, the reason Halifax became so big and grew so much is because the federal government, when they owned Air Canada, made a decision to make it the Atlantic hub. Uh, Moncton was also considered. If, if you know, we might be answering different questions or, or having different answers if Moncton was selected as opposed to Halifax. So, you know, one thing uh, with the province saying they want to look at aviation in New Brunswick within last year is um, there, there was a huge education component. I think. The province had to really understand how airports work. I don't think they really had a, a good idea. And, and to do fair comparison. So if you're comparing us to Bangor, where federal government may pay for all the infrastructure, pay for security, those type of things, or to Halifax, which did benefit from that hub situation, plus has, you know, the provincial government, uh, I think, provide 11 or $12 million of funding to develop air service. Those things don't happen in New Brunswick. So if we want to compare apples to apples, maybe we need a bit better level playing field in New Brunswick. Uh, having said that, I, I think the province did a really good study. They, they first uh, benchmarked where we're at today. The phase we're in right now is to see where should we go or where could we go. So from what they, I understand is they're, they're going to release a report in the March timeframe uh, to give us uh, an idea of what the direction is. So for airports like us, it would be good to understand, you know, could they help with air service development, right? Are there things where, where they can assist? Um, the, the other piece of it, and this is one item I, I get frustrated with, is property taxes. Because we're paying huge amounts, and that doesn't need to be the case. There could be exemptions made, because, and, and we've been having discussions with uh, uh, people in that business, 
it, having an airport really benefits the value of all the properties around the airport. So if there those properties go up in value, should the airport be the ones paying higher property taxes for that? So I, I think there's some of those discussions to be had. The, the good news in New Brunswick with the airports we have, the airports are really self-sufficient. They've, they've all done well since transfer. There's good money coming in. There'll typically be surpluses every year, except during a pandemic. Uh, but the biggest challenge could be with infrastructure investment for the long term. So if that's the real issue, then, then let's address that issue. So I, you know, would one airport make a difference? I, I, I think it would be interesting to see what the, the province has to say about that. But I, I think to your point, I think the challenge is, is people expect that if we'd have one airport, we would have direct flights to London, we would have direct flights to the US and those type of things. And the only way we will have those direct flights is if they're profitable or if they're subsidized. So it has nothing to do with the number of airports we have, right? So, and, it, and I think, it's easy to say we should have one airport when no one's coming forward and say, I'll pay the 400 or $500 million to build a new airport or, or selecting which airport it is. You know, when I look at it, the best time to have decided that we should operate with one airport would have been in the mid 1990s when the federal government was privatizing airports. And, you know, the provincial government at the side didn't get involved. And, and could have said to Ottawa, shut down three airports and build one here. And, and you know, unfortunately, Mr. McKenna was there at the time. Today, I, I think he's a proponent of one single or larger airport, but the decision should have been made in the 1990s, not today. So. Yeah, and my, my sense of it is the civil servants in Fredericton didn't, you know, didn't want to drive an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes to go to, to, go to the airport. Um, one quick question on the pandemic. You talked a little bit about about some of the the buffers that were in place, but uh, how have you been able to financially deal with the lower revenue numbers, particularly in terms of servicing your debt? Yeah, we uh, we we were fortunate. Uh, you know, if we looked at the first year of the pandemic, the only uh, financial support uh, we received from the federal government was wage subsidies, similar to everyone else. So that didn't really help us out. So we lost $6.5 million that year, used up most of our cash reserves. Uh, the federal government did come to the rescue in summer 2021. Uh, we did benefit from uh, enough funds coming in, I think it was just over $7.5 million or so, to replenish our, our cash reserves. Uh, if that wouldn't happen, what we've done, and our, our bankers have been very cooperative, we increased our line of credit. So if we had to draw from it, we could have. So, you know, in, in our airport situation, we were very fortunate to be in a good financial position before we end the pandemic started. So, you know, in 2014, we owed over $40 million. Uh, by the end of 2019, I believe we owed about 21 million. So we'd reduced our debt by almost half. Uh, and we had eight or 9 million in the bank going into the pandemic. So that money was meant to help us with the capital projects we had planned, but that's why we deferred the projects and everything else. So I, I think just being very financially prudent in the, the five or six years before the pandemic really helped us buffer the pandemic. Uh, if I look at ha airports like uh, whether it's Halifax lost $100 million or, or I think Vancouver might have been half a billion dollars, something like that, we weren't in those type of situations. So we, you know, we, we were fortunate that we haven't had uh, to borrow for that. Uh, but we, we did prepare ourselves in case that were to happen. So uh, our, our biggest challenge is forecasting when things come back to normal because, you know, our, our revenue is really based on passengers. So, so it, you know, it, uh, uh, I would say at least 70% of it is tied to the passenger some shape or form. So without the passengers, we can't get back to normal. But if things are a bit slower coming back and there's no government funding, we can't, we can't draw from our line of credit. No, just following up on that, uh, just looking ahead, how long do you anticipate it will take to rebuild uh, passenger traffic to pre-pandemic uh, levels, Bernard? The, you know, the, um, I, I'd say if you look around the industry, the consensus is it should be by 2024. Uh, but if, you know, government policies can really accelerate or slow that down. If we look at the U.S., they're much further down the path than we are. And, and they, you know, 
I'm on the board of the International Airport Association for North America, and they kind of look at us and say, oh, it's too bad for you in Canada that things are moving faster. But if we have restrictive travel policies, uh, restrictions who can travel, you know, testing you need, that does affect it. So, it, it, you know, if we're not careful, it could take longer. Uh, it'll be really interesting this summer because we, we, uh, we did our budgets in November. Uh, what we are forecasting is that uh, we're hoping for about 52% of our normal traffic, traffic for this year. Uh, the past two years, we only had 26% of our traffic in both 2021. So we didn't really gain anything in 2021. So our problem right now is January was worse than we thought. Uh, all our sun destination flights were canceled, either because of government restrictions, lack of demand, or our not being allowed to have international flights yet. So, we're, you know, the first five months of the year, we're likely going to be below our projections, but we're getting positive announcements starting in May. So if, if we're getting more seat capacity, that's great as long as people fill those seats, right? So, so if we have a very strong summer, which the airlines are expecting or hoping for, uh, maybe we'll still be able to finish the year where we thought we would, but it'd just be a lot more compressed in the last seven months of the year. So. Bernard, uh, we did talk a little bit earlier about the changing landscape in the airline industry with the new players like Provincial Airlines, Flair and Swoop. What are the best near-term prospects for adding new routes here uh, out of Moncton? Now, if we, we, we've had some very good announcements in the last uh, few weeks. So uh, Swoop, for instance, announced that we're going to have uh, four times weekly service to Hamilton starting uh, May 9th. That's a very familiar route to our region. That's where WestJet started in uh, 2001 in Atlantic Canada. So that, that's something we're excited about. Plus, they'll have two direct flights to Edmonton for uh, the end of mid-June to mid-September. So that, that could be real positive. There are large aircraft. There are 189 seats, so a lot of seats to fill. Uh, the other announcement from Porter about direct to Toronto Island, over and above what they already do with Ottawa, can really help stimulate activity in our market. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, a swoop, for instance, as a low-cost carrier, and we've seen this in the past, they tend to draw people that don't fly as much or that we don't see as much of the airport. So, so that can, can really help. Uh, this summer, WestJet's announced that their, um, some of their recovery of service will use a, a 737 aircraft instead of a Q400. That, that's real positive because we lost that in our market. And when we lost that aircraft, we also lost the ability for WestJet to go to sun charters like Florida or to go to uh, Mexico. So that gives that potential back if we can keep that aircraft. Uh, Air Canada is also looking at reintroducing some of the larger Rouge aircraft. So that, that's additional capacity. So, you know, those are the players we work with. Uh, you know, it's been announced now that we're allowed to have international flights starting February 28. Uh, unfortunately, I think we've lost our season with Sunwing and Air Transat. That's normally 50,000 passengers a year for us. Uh, but it, it's, uh, you know, it's a million dollars plus in revenue. So with this announcement, then we hope we'll be on their schedule for next year. Maybe they'll start a bit earlier. But if we can get 11 to 13 of those flights a week, that's really positive. Uh, in, in terms of potential new routes or new airlines, uh, other than the ones I mentioned, uh, we do have some new entrants into Canada. So jet lines and links are, are new uh, potential partners for us. So, so, you know, they may have different focus areas, maybe be more uh, leisure focused. The other one might be more low cost focus. And I, I think, uh, you know, we look at regaining a roof with Air Canada, for instance, to Ottawa would be beneficial. But the interesting thing as well is uh, Air Canada, for instance, uh, I believe they just confirmed this week, they're going to buy all these A220 planes. Those aircraft can serve long, thin routes. So if we'd want to have a year-round Calgary route or, or you know, whether it be to uh, Paris or something like that, those aircraft can do those type of things competitively. So that opens up new potential. Uh, Porter has also announced that they're looking at jet service to expand your network, but not necessarily from Toronto Island. So I think there's a lot of real positive potential for us. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the summer, because to me, there's huge capacity in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia and PEI. So we'll see if it all 
survives, but I, I, I think there's great potential to, to have competitive offerings, a lot more pickup. And, and I think as things stabilize, then people might be willing to look at whether it's a European route doing a, a sun charter or something they haven't done before. Uh, a bit of our challenge when we look at where people fly to, there's not a lot of cities that we really could support a daily service to. So, you know, I think one of the most unserved markets we have is Las Vegas, but you couldn't have a, a route there every day. It's kind of sporadic in, in terms of demand. So that's where, you know, having good partners where you connect through the hubs is important as well. Right? So. Um. Bernard, we just have a couple of questions. Uh, um, just looking back over your tenure as CEO, CEO, what are your most proud? What are you most proud of in terms of your accomplishments? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, other than the pandemic, I won't mention that as a proud accomplishment. But uh, you know, we we've really, uh, uh, I, I would say, we rebuilt the team. So I'm, I'm really comfortable leaving because we have a good, strong team. So that that's the number one, I would say, but we've also rebuilt the infrastructure. You know, we have two runways now that should be good for 15 years or so. Uh, we've got an airport operations facility that will be good for that long. So there shouldn't be any major investments required other than upkeep and expansionary in nature. So I think those are key. Uh, I, you know, if I look at the one I'm probably the proudest of is, is probably the whole de-icing uh, project. And, and the reason for that is I, I did work at Transaqua before coming to the airport. And as soon as I showed up at the airport and found out that, you know, our food's going in the municipal system, that that rang alarm bells. Okay. So that's something that, that uh, had to be addressed. And we were able to address it in a way that actually helps Transaqua instead of potentially hurting them, which was a surprise to us and to them as well. But I, I think makes it uh, really viable for the long term as an approach. Uh, people don't know this, but Moncton had to comply to secondary treatment of effluent systems by 2020, while you have municipalities, larger municipalities like Halifax and Montreal have until 2030 to do it. So we, we were at the front of the curve in terms of having to do that. And I think the solution we found was very unique and probably be looked at by others because it, it uh, if it's proven to work, then everyone benefits from it. So I, you know, to me, uh, I, I, uh, I think leaving the airport with a good amount of cash in the bank, uh, you know, the infrastructure in place, a good team there, I, I think it'll make my successor look great, right? So they can only go up from there. So. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, how optimistic are you that airports in general, and Moncton in particular, will be able to return to their previous levels of activity? In the, you know, we mentioned earlier that we do a master planning exercise every 10 years. We look 20 years into the future. Uh, what I find interesting with those forecasts, passenger traffic always goes up. We, we don't forecast a 9-11. We don't forecast a recession in 2008. So we never show a dip in traffic. It's always a straight line going up. Right. You know, so if we could forecast that in 2031, we'll have a huge recession, you know. So the reality is, is, activity will keep going up. The, the challenge today is just when do we get back to what we were? It may not be all the same type of activity as we had before. You know, if I, if I look at a Halifax airport, they've lost all the connectivity between the, the New Brunswick PEI, Newfoundland airport. So they may have to grow through low cost carriers or that type of activity, as opposed to uh, the type of uh, EVAS type of 19-seater traffic they used to have before. So I, I, I think, you know, things will definitely recover, uh, but there'll also be more bumps in the road. You know, some things I always look at in the aviation sector, at some point in time, if you have aircraft that don't need long runways to land, you reduce your infrastructure costs significantly, right? So all of a sudden, if you could have that type of new technology, an airport may not need to look like what it looks like today, right? So there could be very different needs or approaches. And, that, and that's something that, you know, as you're forecasting into the future, someone will have to factor in because we may become obsole obsolescent in terms of investing $30 million in runways, right? So, Well, Bernard, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your uh, time with the airport authority. Uh, obviously, you've made a big difference to the community and uh, New Brunswick uh, through your work. And I want to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast. I, I hope that our listeners have a much better idea about 
how airport authorities work and how important they are to our economy. So uh, best wishes for the future as well. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, I think in the airport world, what we see is anyone that's flown on a plane once knows how to run an airport. So I'm sure there'll be great candidates to go over my role. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks again. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week. This episode of Insights was brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca.